0: We certainly are very much excited about the opportunity of assembling and gathering, even as we are this evening. We're thankful that God has so blessed us with health and the opportunity to come and to give consideration from the heart to offer worship unto the wonderful God of heaven. Now, the psalmist stated in the long ago, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up unto the house of the Lord. To borrow the wording of Psalm 122, verse 1, And certainly we have been glad to assemble earlier today by the blessing of God, and now again today is this afternoon as well. As you probably have already noticed, we have already arrived at the second installment of our questions and answer sessions this this particular calendar year. We do this once a month, at least typically. Sometimes if the questions become more numerous, we may have additional sessions as well. But at least this is our second one so far this year. The questions, as always, are outstanding questions, very intriguing, sometimes very challenging in some ways. And these opening ideas on the slide remind us of this. They're always your questions. I don't ever ask my own, but rather they're things that you have either expressed to me directly by word or placed in the box out there in the foyer. But either way, questions that you have asked and hence will attempt to allow the Word of God to provide direction and answer to those questions that you have asked. We have a few of these questions tonight, and as always, I'll try to read them verbatim as shared with me. That way I don't misunderstand or at least mis-express anything that has been worded so far. The opening question is this one. Other than Michael and Gabriel, does the Bible give any indication that the other angels have names? If so, does the Bible give any hints that the devil has a given name? So those questions take us to the next slide. And so here are some thoughts I would at least offer to you as you make ready to consider some of these issues with me. You may want to be be turning at some point to Judges chapter 13. I do think we find at least some interesting information that might be of some benefit to us as we reflect on the 13th chapter of Judges. To bring us up to that point, though, let me share with you some initial information, at least some initial ideas and see if these will not be of some value and benefit to us. First of all, the person asking the question does make the interesting observation other than Gabriel and Michael. We seemingly are well aware that these two particular names are those which we encounter in the Word of God. And I've asked you to notice at the top, in Jude chapter, in Jude verse 9, for example, we have the particular reference to Michael the archangel. In other words, we're told that that particular angelic being does have a well-identified proper name. Not only that, you may notice references made to Michael in Luke chapter 1, verses 19 and following. We also notice a reference again to uh, to, uh, to, to Gabriel. In that time, of course, the angelic visitor provided information to not only Mary, but also Joseph. But what about the other angels? You might pause to take note that according to Revelation 5, there's an innumerable host of angels, millions upon millions of them. So the person asking the question has a very good question. Do the others have names as well? Does the Bible give any indication to this? I might suggest that as far as I was able to determine, there isn't a lot of information about this, but at least this text does seem to offer us a thought. Could we at least share some of the features of Judges 13? We'll not read certainly the entirety of that chapter, but the following information is very intriguing indeed. You may recall that an angelic visitor came and visited Manoah's wife. Now, she was to be the mother of Samson, and Manoah was to be, of course, Samson's father. During the course of that angelic visit... Some interesting questions were asked. Allow me to read them to you. In verse number 6 of that chapter, Then the woman came and told the husband, saying, A man of God came unto me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God. Very terrible. But I asked him, not whence he was, neither told me his name. Now at this point we might notice that Manoah's wife, and her name is not oddly enough, shared with us. But we notice that she herself admitted, when he visited with me, though I had a sense of who he was, I did not ask his name, and he did not tell me his name. Let's read further in the chapter. For you'll notice that that angelic visitor departed, but came back and visited Manoah himself. As you come later in the chapter, you may note particularly the following set of verses. Verses 17 and following, Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, What is thy name, that when thy sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor? And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? May I offer you a couple of observations. First, hear Manoah ask what the angel's name was. Isn't it interesting how the angel replied? Isn't it interesting the statement that the angel himself made? He said, why do you ask after my name? He didn't say, I don't have one. He said, why do you ask after it? Because it is secret. Interestingly enough, the Hebrew word that's translated secret in that place, as you can see on the slide, literally means wonderful as well as incomprehensible. In other words, the angel seemingly acknowledged the fact that he had a name, but that it wasn't suitable for Manoah to know what it was. In terms of the answer to the person's question, it would seem to me based on that passage that angels do have names, that they do have proper recognitions by which they can be referenced, but that at least for you and me in this life, it isn't needful for us to know what those names are. Could I at least offer us this, though? When we do arrive at that golden strand beyond this fleshly existence, then we'll be in the presence of that angelic host, according to Revelation 4 and 5. Maybe then we may well need to know what those names are. But again, for here, it doesn't seem as if it is not something that might lead us to note this. Notice, apparently they do have names. We just don't need to use them now. Might I say beyond that, there was another question I asked. In that opening question, what about a proper name for the devil? This one is much much better known, it would seem, throughout the course of the biblical revelation to us, isn't it? In fact, we're all well aware of it. We know that this phrase devil, this word devil, is the diabolical one. It has reference to that which He is as His nature is opposed and the diabolical one to the will of God. But you and I will remember on many other occasions there is a proper name by which He's called. Get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus said that. The Lord, it seems, made reference to the proper unique name by which this one is to be known. Not only that, in Luke 22, 3, do you remember? Jesus talked to Peter, expressly said, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Now you and I remember what was about to happen in the verses that followed that. Peter made a very poor choice. and You may recall that ultimately it would lead to his denial of Jesus three times that very night. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 20, Paul, under the realization of the inspiration provided to him, said, Satan is one, in that passage at least, who has caused a shipwreck of Alexander and Hymenaeus. It would seem the proper name is Satan. That one that not only is the diabolical one, not only the generic evil one, but that is the proper name by which the Scriptures reference him. In Zechariah chapter 3, this single individual, this single being, the one Satan, stood opposed to Israel, stood opposed to the high priest, and brought about great evil at that place and at that time. So it would seem that, again, our opening question of the night tonight has been an intriguing one, and one that leads us to ponder some about the features and attributes of the world beyond this one. What about question number two? The second question takes us to the sixth chapter of the book of John. The question reads as follows. Please explain what it is that Jesus is teaching in John chapter 6, verses 53 to 58. As you're turning to that particular passage, allow me to share some generic ideas that bring us to that particular text. In John the sixth chapter, we easily make note of a number of rather remarkable events For one thing, the feeding of the 5,000, an amazing miracle took place. You might recall the Lord did that with but five loaves and two fish. Not only that, you may recall that a large number of scraps, fragments as the Scripture would call it, were collected, 12 baskets full. But that's only the beginning of the chapter. A little bit later in the chapter, a very interesting dialogue, a conversation developed between the Lord... And some particular individuals who had seen that miracle, and Jesus directly told him at one point, you're not following because of the doctrine. You're following because you got your belly full. In other words, they were only interested in the physical food the Lord was miraculously providing. But they did ask Him an interesting set of questions, and part of that will lead us to the ending set of verses, which will be the focus of our discussion for this question. Please explain, the, the person said, John 6, verses 53 to 58. Allow me to first read the verses, and then we'll revisit and give some attention to them. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. And are dead, he that eateth this bread shall live forever. What did the Lord mean by this? May I offer the following thought that it seems, and many have at least supposed, that there might be a direct connection to the Lord's Supper here. Because as we recognize that unleavened bread of which we eat is representative of His body, that fruit of the vine representative of His blood, as per the statements of Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. And yet in this one wonders, since the context seemingly is somewhat different, and seemingly the wording and the language that the Master used is also somewhat different, is this referring to the Lord's Supper? If not, what else might it be? What else might be the circumstance and the idea that's put before us? As you look near the top of that slide, may I first invite us to notice that there was an initial assertion in verse 27, labor not for the things which this life has to offer. That is to say, the greatest and most profound truths are those which connect to the life beyond this one. Make sure, of course, our soul is well, that things are right between us and God. In the midst of that, for instance, we arrive at verse 35, which admittedly is somewhat prior to the verses of interest. But Jesus very abundantly said, I am the bread of life. By the way, the exact same phrase is found in verse 48 again. I am the bread of life. You'll notice amongst the other things that could be stated about those two passages in particular, We're reminded then that the attention of those of that day, those that were asking the Lord this question, remember, they were only interested in the food. Of less interest was the doctrine He was teaching. Of less interest was the kind of life He was insisting that they live. He was reminding them, among other things, you need to have an interest in things not only that will fill your stomach. It's true, that's important, no doubt about that. After all, he did feed the 5,000. There is some significance to physical food. But it's not the most important. The most important is the food that feeds the soul. The most important is the food by which one can be connected to God rightly and appropriately and righteously. For that reason, he said, I am the bread of life. One must live in the Lord. We know one comes to be in the Lord by being baptized into him. We're taught that in Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. One abides in Him and continues in Him and dwells in Him, as taught in 1 John 2, verse 24. So the first thing we would say is this is not just a momentary matter, not something I do for a couple of minutes, a time or two a week at most, but it must be a far more reaching truth than that something that is much more indicative of the lifestyle. For that reason, I would suggest to you, it would seem to me, this is not directly teaching about the the observance of the Lord's Supper. It seems much more ongoing. In fact, as I would ask you to notice on the slide, there's even something to be said about the verb tenses that are used, which may even give a deeper understanding of this. For instance, near the bottom of that slide, the Lord Himself had already taught that He, not just His body, not just an element of His blood, but He, and all that He is and represents is that which provides life. He would say that again a couple of different ways in the gospel accounts actually. Isn't it true then that it would seem that the bread that they were thinking about They had already mentioned the manna. Look, our fathers had manna. Couldn't you give us some more? The Lord said, look, I am the bread of life. To feed your belly once or twice is not going to make the change in life that God would demand of you. I am the bread of life. You need to follow me in my teachings always. Not just in connection to, quote, the Lord's Supper, as that might be referenced. As far as speaking about those verb tenses... You may well look at some additional information provided on this slide about the context, the verb tenses that appear, and some of the features that might also be mentioned. I again would I invite you to note at the top, it would seem, based on some of those ideas, that the Lord's Supper is not the main thing being understood. In no way would I want to detract from the value of that Lord's Supper The brethren in Acts 20 verse 7, they came together to partake of the Lord's Supper. That was a central part of their assembly. It was a key part of the reason they had come together. And so I would never want my words tonight to be taken as in any way lessening the thrust, lessening the significance of the Lord's Supper. Because isn't it true in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul would say that we must examine ourselves so that we partake of it worthily because those who partake of that unworthily bring damnation on their souls." Now that's a strong teaching. It's a direct teaching in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 25 to 31. But let's go back to this passage. I've asked you to notice the verb tenses. There's a second idea on that slide. The verb tenses appear to counter the concept that this apparently was only connected to the Lord's Supper. For remember. The church had not even yet been established when John chapter 6 was written. That is to say, when the events that it was describing were set forward, the church had not yet even come into existence. The Lord wasn't even dead yet. It would thus seem He was not at that time commanding them in light of that moment, for those people couldn't have partaken of the Lord's Supper. Not at that time. He was going to have to wait until He died. And the church was established in Acts chapter 2. Perhaps that would also lead us to note this. By the context in which these verses appear, they seem to be describing a demanded close connection between the individual and Jesus Christ. As Christians, don't we wear His name? Acts 11:26. Isn't it true that He gave His life for us, and in faithfulness we're commanded until death to give ours for Him? Revelation 2, verse 10. That kind of connection will then be highlighted as the chapter closes, interestingly enough. Do you remember? That, that same group, they heard the Lord's teaching here and found it to be very hard. And many of the disciples, the text would say, turned and walked no more with Him. Notice, they had come to get their belly full, but in light of hearing what He taught, they weren't willing to stay for, for, for the remainder of the meals. They didn't walk any more with Him, the text says. Jesus at that point asked the others that did remain, Will you also go away? And Peter responded by saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. It would thus seem, perhaps in summary, that the description of that set of verses, verses 53 to 58, points not merely to the Lord's Supper, but to a deeper connection, a rather powerful connection and profound one in which you and I are connected to the Lord. And so as we live day by day connecting to Him, we do eat His flesh and we do drink His blood. By the way, isn't it interesting? The Catholic Church will take this, apply it to the Lord's Supper, and thus make people spiritual cannibals, literally eating the body and blood of the Lord. That's not what the Lord was teaching. We aren't spiritual cannibals in that way. But what we are are those who imbibe the Lord's teachings. We literally eat Him up in the sense of we take what He's taught, we try to implement it in our life, and we do so because we love Him and because we know He's right. Didn't He say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. As we close that particular slide, having given some thought to this rather powerful passage, In John chapter 6, let's come to question number three. This question is asked like this Does the Bible mention demons? If so, can they possess a person today? I have a denominational friend that says demons can possess a person just because they watch scary movies. I don't believe that. Could you please comment? Question again, having to do with demons on this occasion. For the person began by asking, does the Bible reference demons? It certainly does. In fact, on many, many occasions. At the top of that slide, I would remind you that approximately 80 times the Bible makes a direct reference to demons. So that doesn't even count the indirect references, but on at least 80 times. I would ask you to notice just a few of those verses quickly in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 10, and Mark chapter 1 all make these very clear references to the capacity of those living at the time of the Master to be overwhelmed by, possessed by a demon. Probably one of those is quite familiar to us as we remember. There was, of course, an occasion in which the Lord cast out a demon And that demon went into a herd of swine, and they rushed over a hill and drowned themselves in the sea. But that event was so overwhelming that, remember, it led to an interesting conversation. A demon actually directly asked the master a question. Have you come to torment us before the time? They knew what their fate was going to be. They already knew that they were destined to be tormented, and they wanted to know, are you going to start it early? That's when the Lord cast them out into, again, that herd of swine. At the very least, can't we say that the Bible very clearly teaches that these demons and demon possession did exist. Now, moving beyond that to the next item on that slide, notice some of the things that that possession could bring about. It wasn't the same in every person. Some people were made mute because of blindness. that is to say they couldn't talk. Others were made blind because of that possession of demons. Others, it seems, had fits. Do you recall the father who spoke about his son who was possessed with a demon? And it says he would, in fact, be cast into the water or he would injure himself in some way. It didn't mean the same thing in every person. But it was clearly something that they understood. And it was something with which they were well aware by way of observation. On that slide in Matthew 17, in Luke 11, as well as Matthew 12, all of those references highlight various things that could happen as a result of demon possession. What was the purpose of the demon possession? Have you ever taken this observation? You don't read about it in the Old Testament. We seemingly do not find any occurrences in the Old Testament anywhere in the 39 Old Testament books about those that were possessed with demons. But suddenly, as we open to the New Testament, in Matthew 4, we already have a reference to it. What changed between the Old Testament and the New? What was different? What allowed it in the New Testament era, but seemingly did not in the Old? Could I offer you this thought? And I've listed it for your consideration on that slide. There was something about the power behind demon possession. You know the power behind it was of the devil. It was of Satan. Jesus Himself would make reference to that concept when He talked about Satan as the strong man. But the Lord quickly affirmed that one stronger than the strong man is here has entered his house and has bound the strong man. Notice this it would seem from the biblical perspective that the reason for demon possession, why the God of heaven allowed it for that limited period in time, was to permit the authentication of Jesus Christ and the message of Him and of His apostles. Would it not be impressive, in fact rather overwhelming, that one of these apostles, or the Lord Himself, could come into a community into a place in which it was known that this person has been afflicted with his possession for some number of years. And the Lord or one of His apostles could cast out that demon and suddenly that one who was known to be so previously afflicted, that was known to be so previously in that very unfortunate situation was now in his right mind. Isn't that what happened to that man in Mark chapter 5? There was a man that was well-known in the community. Let me give you some descriptions that probably are quite familiar to you. You may recall he lived among the tombs. He would cut himself and cry all night long. They would have said he was probably insane or deranged in some form, but it was clearly more than that. Because remember, they would bind him with chains and he could break them like nothing. He had superhuman strength because of that demon possession. When Jesus came ashore in that boat and this man, this one, came running to Him, He acknowledged who Jesus was. You see, that demon that possessed Him knew the Lord rather well. He identified Him. Jesus cast out that demon and the man that had lived like that was now in His right mind. That should have been a powerful lesson to all of those in that community. Look what Jesus did. Their doctors hadn't been able to do it. Their religious people hadn't been able to do it. No one had been able to do it. But Jesus could. No wonder as a part of that verse, that chapter I should say, the comment is made that many who previously may have been somewhat skeptical, they were led to be believers. They were led to be those who acknowledged the power of the Master. Let's step even further beyond that and note this. That authentication is stated in some verses very carefully. Look at Mark 16, verse number 17. Remember, we're talking about the possession of demons. Look at what this verse says about the reason why God allowed it and what it brought about. It says, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. In that early first century, when the consideration of the master was among them, Jesus said, here's the reason for demon possession. Those in my name will be able to cast them out. And that's going to be a sign that will follow those that were, again, the followers of the Lord. Now, first of all, you and I shouldn't think that just everyone that made some claim to believing in the Lord had the power to cast out demons, because we have additional information in Acts chapter 8. There, in light of the transferal of power to accomplish that, it had to be by the hands of an apostle. But isn't it interesting? That was so, such power that even Simon wanted to buy it. And Peter had to chastise him and rebuke him and says, this is not for sale. But can't we at least notice in that passage, something about the reason for demon possession was highlighted. You might also notice that later on in Hebrews chapter 2, again, that same kind of understanding is presented before us. The person who asked this question, though, also asked this. Is it still possible today? You and I now live almost 2,000 years this side of the, of the life of Christ upon earth. Is there still demon possession? And the person made note that if you watch a scary movie, can that lead to some kind of a demon possession? What do we think, and what does the Bible teach about it? That's ultimately the great question, of course. Would you turn with me to Zechariah chapter 13? We seemingly at that place have an answer to this aspect, however, of the question. In Zechariah chapter 13, a few hundred years prior to the actual coming of Jesus to earth, an amazing prophecy was given. And that prophecy read like this. All we'll need to do is consider that one verse, and at that time it says, It shall come to pass in that day. So already note with me that Zechariah, through the inspiration of God's revelation, was pointing to the events of some time for him that were in the future. He said, "...it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land. First, I'm going to remove the considerations about attachment to idols, and there shall be a recognized King of kings and Lord of lords." Let's read on. "...and they shall no more be remembered, and also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land." So you'll notice, apparently there was going to be a time when unclean spirits would have prevalence. They would have occurrence, but there will come a time I will remove them. I will cast them out. It would seem that we have at least an Old Testament prophecy that demon possession would not be allowable after a certain period in time. We've already noticed that Jesus Himself had said in Mark 16 that these will follow those times of authentication when the Word has not yet been put into the form of written form. Once that was complete, 1 Corinthians 13.10, and once that Word had been completed and authenticated, there was no longer a reason for that authentication. Hebrews chapter 2 will say that at that time the authentication will stop. No more demon possession in the times of our day today. It's true that we have sicknesses. There are people who have epilepsy, and they may have fits, and they may have essences of behavior, but that's not the same as demon possession. There may be others afflicted with blindness, but it's not caused by a demon. There may be those who are lame, or perhaps are mute, but it isn't caused by a demon today. It's caused by some other biological consideration or some other accident, perhaps. But the source is not demon possession. One by one, as we've looked at the three questions so far tonight, maybe it brings us to the fourth question of the evening. This particular question is one that has been asked like this Consider Acts chapter 2, verses 45 to 47. Are these verses examples for us today? If not, what are they teaching us? Why don't we at least follow them in house study and fellowship on a regular basis? But the Vestal read that set of verses earlier tonight in our hearing. Let's read them again in light of the question that has now been asked. Remember that, that as I read them in your hearing, the question is, do these apply directly in the form they're given to us today? I think one of the ideas behind the question as the person asked it is this. Isn't it true that as you and I make reference to Acts chapter 2, we often cast such a strong spotlight on verse 38. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. We use that passage to help us understand and put into practice the, 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 the demand of the Lord. This was the day the church began. It was the birthday of the church, if you please. If we use verse number 38 in that connection, and with such directness and literal thrust and and, and power, then what about the verses that follow it? It's true in verse number 41, we have a reference to baptism, and again, we often make powerful reference to that text. In verse number 42, we often make use of that one with such great strength. Look at the way it reads. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread and in prayers. We have many of the authorized elements of worship listed in that one verse. First of all, there's apostles' doctrine, the commitment to the Word and preaching. We have reference to fellowship, which appears to involve giving. We have reference to the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper. We have reference to prayers. Four of the five, five authorized elements of worship are all in that one verse. But as you read onward, it says, fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. So note, the apostles were equipped by God to do these miraculous wonders and signs. And as they did them, many were brought to have an interest in and attachment to the gospel that has now been presented. On to verse number 44. All that believed were together and had all things common. We may pause at this point and say there have been some who have taken this to mean, doesn't this mean, quite frankly, that Christianity ought to be a kind of communism? Everybody ought to pool their physical resources into a common pot and then distributed out as each person has need, which, is, of course, is the ideology of communism. Does this teach that? Does this teach that that would be the right way for a given congregation to do their business? That now brings us to verse 45. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Is it right for a Christian to own a house? Is it right for a Christian to own a piece of land? For this says they sold theirs. Should we do that too? If so, I suspect most of us here are wrong. We're living in a way that wouldn't be appropriate, and we wouldn't be living in a way that maybe would be the ideal. We've got a good question on our hands here, don't we? What is the appreciation connected to the passage you and I have just noted? You'll notice some things on that slide. The first thing that I would offer to us is let's not be as hasty as to reach the conclusion which I just at least offered that some might consider. For turn just a couple of chapters over to Acts chapter 5 and what there is said. You may recall the scene involved Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they owned some land. Let's see what was said to them in light of that situation. Verse number 4, Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God." The early part of that verse, do you notice what was asserted? As Peter, by inspiration, addressed Ananias, he said, "...look, the land was yours." There was no command from God for you to sell it. It belonged to you. And then he went on to say, even after it was sold, the money was yours. God didn't command you to give every bit of it. May I at least offer us this thought? Then we cannot take Acts chapter 2, verses 45 to 47 as a demand on the part of God that a Christian cannot own property, cannot own possessions, because Peter here exactly said, look, it was yours to do with as you saw fit. Now, had it been commanded that God's will was for him to sell it, that surely would not be consistent with what Peter said. But Peter, again, wasn't wrong in this. He was the emissary of heaven at that point. So it's not wrong for a Christian to own property, and it isn't wrong to have possessions. Now, we do understand fully well from a host of passages that those possessions must not become our God. No, that's what the Lord was teaching in Luke 12, wasn't it? That man whose crops brought forth so much, and he said, this is what I'll do. I'll pull down these barns and build some bigger ones, and I'll store up everything that I have acquired. And then I'll say, soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, if thou hast many goods laid up for many years. You may recall God did have the final say in that situation. This night thy soul shall be required of thee, and then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? It isn't wrong to have possessions, but we must be good stewards of them, recognizing that ultimately, ultimately God is the one who has given them to us. He is the one who has made them available to us, and we're commanded to be good stewards in light of how we use them and employ them. And so about the middle of that slide, There's also this consideration, which we must not go past too quickly. There was one word in verse number 45 that we should at least identify. It's the last word of the verse, need. Apparently, there was an acute need for some reason at that moment in time. That surely could be some consideration. May I at least offer what it would seem that that need was. Recall what was the day under discussion here. It was the day of Pentecost. You and I recall from the Old Testament that God had indicated that those Jews, those Hebrews, that they were to observe three feasts, three festivals in the course of the year. The first one was the Passover. So they had to come to wherever the tabernacle was and there they celebrated the Passover. But you and I recall that 50 days later, numbered from the day of the, power, numbered from the Sabbath of the Passover, they were to celebrate the Pentecost. Now for those that had traveled a great distance, for those that had traveled a pretty far place, think about what might have been involved. So you load up all the things that you need to take and you journey to Jerusalem or you journeyed wherever it was that this was to be observed and kept at that time. So you'd end up turning around, going back home, and given the fact it may take several days, if not several weeks, to get back home, you would no sooner get back home than you'd almost have to turn around and go back for the Pentecost. Josephus and others seemingly record that what many would do, they would come for the Passover and stay for the Pentecost, so they would be in the, environments, in the environment for several weeks. Well, think about what happened for some of them. While they were there for the Pentecost, they suddenly heard the gospel for the first time. And about 3,000 of them responded to it. And in the days that followed, many, many more responded. We, in fact, by the time we arrived at Acts chapter 4, the number had arisen to over 5,000. What about this situation then? Here was someone who had traveled and maybe they hadn't brought nearly the provisions necessary in order to allow them to have stayed this long. And so now they were in need, they didn't have enough food. Could it be that a description or at least a part of what's presented here is the way in which those brethren of the first century saw to it that the needs of the others were met? Those that were now new Christians, but they needed to stay in Jerusalem because they needed more strength and more teaching, more instruction and more encouragement. Those Christians saw to it that those that were in need had it because they would make the necessary offerings. If needed, they'd sell their possessions. They'd sell their land. But as we've already learned earlier, it doesn't seem that's a demand of God. It's your land. Do with it what you want while it's yours. That kind of need is highlighted again two chapters later in Acts chapter 4. Look at some of the presentation of near the end of that chapter. Acts chapter 4, verse number 34. "'Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet.' And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. There's our word again. Now those people that were living in Jerusalem that had plenty, they were not amongst those that had need. But they could be amongst those who could help supply for those that were in need. May I at least offer you this thought as you come near the bottom of that slide with me. It would be entirely wrong for a Christian recognizing a fellow brother or sister in need and doing nothing about it. If one of our number comes to be in need due to catastrophe, due to disaster, due to unfortunate circumstance in life, we as brethren would want to provide necessary physical aid. In 1 John 3, 17, we're commanded to do it. In fact, in that passage, it blatantly says, if you don't help your brother in need, the love of God doesn't dwell in you. Therefore, as we've often noted, it's important that we allow others to know when we come to the point that we're in need. I know that we have an independent spirit. We want to take care of our own needs and our own necessities in life, and that's great. We are taught, of course, to have that kind of attitude to the extent we can, 1 Timothy 5.8 says that you need to take care of your own, and if you're not, you're worse than an infidel. But there could come a time when you or I, due to accident, catastrophe, or otherwise, we might literally be in need. I hope that you or I would feel free to let our elders know. That's not insulting. It would not be putting yourself into a position to others look down on you. We would want to be those that could be of help. That's one of the reasons we have a treasury for the congregation. That out of that, we can do benevolent work to those who are in need, to those who might be in a position whereby that they truly are not just in a matter of, shall we say, lacking of luxury. They're really in need. For that reason, at the bottom of that slide, you may notice that Christians, of course, can find themselves in positions like this. In Galatians 6, verses 7 through 10, look at how this wording encourages each of us. As you have therefore opportunity, do good to all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. In 2 Corinthians 8, one of the last statements that it would seem to me that I'm in a position to make about this, we have another description about this situation. Remember, the question was a fantastic one. Should we sell what we have and provide to others? Look at what the inspired Apostle Paul said about it. 2 Corinthians 8. May I call your attention to verses 13 to 15. For I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want that there may be equality. As it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. By inspiration, Paul made reference to this equality. Those that are in need, well, you folks, you others who have sufficient, you make sure to meet them because the time may come in life, they're the ones in plenty and you're the one in want, and then the obligation will be on that person to assist you. That kind of community is one in that early day that must have been so overwhelming. In the selfishness of the Roman Empire, in the selfishness that was rampant at that time, here was a group of people who so loved each other that when one of them was in need, the others would make sure to satisfy or meet that need. That surely must have attracted many people to the first century church. I realize we live in a rather affluent country, at least in many ways. But it still is true. The Word of God says what it says. And so we too would wish to meet the needs of our number. And even those that are outside, when they have need, we would wish under the banner again of that Galatians 6, verses 7-10 through passage to make sure to teach them the gospel in that way too. Tonight we've looked at four questions. Each one of them has brought us an element in challenge. And as we do that, that one final slide summarizes some of the things that you and I just noted. The question was asked in light of that last question, should we do this in principle? There are many aspects of it we already do. We don't sell our property now by command of God, for we've seen that's not required. But what we do is ensure that the needs of our brethren are met. That helps us see that there is something written in the New Testament that encourages us to reflect on the element of love for the brethren. Doesn't the Bible call it brotherly love? In the words of 2 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. As we close this lesson tonight, with a consideration of our conclusion... We're able to read in such a dramatic way things like this. There's a great value to these questions and answers. Your questions are fantastic. They are, again, things which prompt our thinking. They're things which cause us challenge as we try to rightly divide the Word of Truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. But as we strive to give the answers, may we always allow each of us the understanding that we want the Word of God to be manifested in truth in the lives that we live. It might well be this evening that there's someone in this assembly that, upon consideration of your life, it's not as it ought to be. We would like to invite you to come, to make acknowledgement of sins in life, and allow the blood of Christ to cleanse you from that sin. As an alien sinner, believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have become a Christian, but as of tonight you're unfaithful, The Lord wants you back. He had not given up on you at all. But He's sad that you've chosen to forsake Him. Won't you come back to your first love? If we could be of some benefit in that way, we'd be honored to acknowledge those sins and your confession of them. And as you repent of them and make that confession, the Lord's promised to forgive you that you might leave this place tonight justified, cleansed, and whole in the sight of God. Right now, we're going to stand and sing this song of encouragement. Invite you to come while we stand and while we sing.